The following program was recorded live on October 28, 2009. ReachMD XM160 now presents Second Opinion Live with hosts Drs. Matt Bernholtz and Michael Greenberg. Welcome to Second Opinion Live on ReachMD Radio XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz. Yes, you are, and I'm Dr. Yes, Michael Greenberg. We are live, we're here in the studio, and we're looking for your feedback stat on the phone, on the web, and on Twitter. We're covering hot topics from the field of medicine, talking to experts that you want to hear from. Today we'll talk to Business of Medicine, we'll talk about Business of Medicine with Karen Zupko. She's a practice management expert and president of the national firm Karen Zupko and Associates. If you've got a question for Karen, now is your chance to ask her for free. Free. Our number is 888-MD1-REACH. That's 888-631-7322. Our email is filling up fast. That's sol at reachmd.com. And today we're talking about organ donors. Are you an organ donor? Yep. Are your patients organ donors? We'll talk about expanding the organ donor list all the time, but there's still great progress to be made. So, Matt, can I have one of your kidneys oh, now? Oh, that's creepy. And who out there thinks that science needs a makeover? Are we left-brainers sexy enough to appeal to the public and the next generations of scientists? Or should we even care about image? We're talking substance and style on this week's ReachMD Forum. Yes, we are. And our number again is 888-MD1-REACH. Give us a call, ask Karen a free question, or donate your organ online. <laughs> I tried. Okay, first, before you donate your organs, our regular feature, ReachMD's That's News to Me, where we review curious news headlines from the world of medicine and science. Today's study chronicles 32 days spent in a British bathroom. That is a loo, not a bathroom, young <laughs> well, man. Thank you, Michael. Thank you. Most, most gracious. It's counting, they counted almost 200,000 bathroom visits. It's a new take on hand-washing behaviors and the messages that best encourage men and women to soap up. 200,000 bathroom 200, visits. Wow. This 000. is from the American Journal of Public Health. Data from a highway service station in Britain. Mm. And the research was done from, through the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. Very prestigious. All right. There were other bits. This is a different study, however, Matt, because there were other studies done in the past where people self-reported hand washing. Yeah. I went to the bathroom before the show. I told you I washed my hands. Do you believe me? You don't know. I don't believe it because I know enough physicians. <laughs> Let me tell you. I know enough physicians who have been caught red-handed, or I guess, you know, a Wet different colored hand, hand in, this, in this case, who've always said, what? It's sterile. Urine is sterile, which, first, ew, and second, what? <laughs> I try and use it on my office staff and my wife, too. <laughs> Does not well, work. Well, listen, this study had unobtrusive monitoring. Okay. They had hidden cameras watching, a peop I guess, at people and measuring water and soap uh, rates of usage, and they installed electronic message boards as you walked into the bathroom with messages about hand-washing. That's a, that's a really interesting point because they chose their messages based on um, having a group of psychologists, behavior experts, marketing gurus. They had eight different categories um, that had different behavioral, behavioral um, aspects. One was, uh, I think some of the messages were, uh, don't be a dope, wash with soap. That's for status or ID. Uh, soap it off or eat it later. That's oh, one of my favorites. Yucky. That's one of my favorites. That's the disgust <laughs> factor of behavior. Yeah. Uh, let's see, soap avoids 47% of disease. That's the informational. So a bunch of different categories, basically, is, is what they were trying to do and find out which ones worked the best. Okay, so which was better, men or women? What, what, what worked out here? Well, the results weren't amazingly effective. It actually turns out the genders respond differently, um, which isn't too surprising. But for men, 
there was only a 31% compliance and, and for women 65% compliance at baseline of washing their hands with soap. With the best message out there, and we can get into that, men rose to 35%, women to 71%. But it turns out that men respond better to disgust-based messages, which is surprising. Uh, think I don't think be, so. We're all pigs. Well, I guess we're all <laughs> pigs. But, you know, they, they responded better to, to, surpri- to disgust. If things were disgusting, they went and washed their hands more. You'd think that they'd be more immune to that than Well, women. I think... I think so, because I, th- I think it would, like, stimulate me. I'd laugh at it and then go wash my hands. <laughs> I'd take a shower, too. So what I want to know is, what would you put in, if we had in, in your office, what kind of messages would you put in? I think we've all kind of come up with a few. How about wash your hands, dummy? <laughs> that's a, <laughs> so I, the I, humility I, factor. I, I have to, yeah, that's right. I have to change it all the time, or you could be really kind of funny, um, you know. All right. Peeing on your hands ain't so grand. You so true, true. It's it's a good rhyme. What but, would you, uh, what would you use? What would be the best? one I got for a few. You? I, I'm stuck on this still disgust factor. I'm amazed that men are not as immune. So what oh, I would, lay it on us. Here's one that I would say. I would go. Hey, know what's fun? E. coli bloody diarrhea. Wash your damn hands. <laughs> <laughs> I think I, that would get me to wash my hands, definitely. I would wash them if I saw that, would, and I'm pretty immune to most disgusting things. I think it would get my staff to quit if we started putting signs like that in the bathroom. I, I think, like, uh, you smell, use hand gel. <laughs> I think it's Urine good to be smell, simple. Your pee smells, use hand gel. Be simple. That is the key. Simple, yeah, because we, we are simple people. Each year, more than 20,000 organ transplants are done in the U.S., Yet thousands of individuals don't receive organs in time because the current system just can't keep pace with demand. Right. There's some intriguing ideas out there about how to improve our donor pool. Two of them are the subject of this week's poll. Log on to reachmd.com poll. That's reachmd.com poll to go directly to the poll homepage. Cast your ballot and let's see what you and your peers think. So for this poll, we've created two choices. Uh, we put them uh, we try to make as black as white and white as possible. Opt in and opt out. We should definitely clarify what that means for those who don't understand. Opt in uh, stands for explicit consent or mandated consent. Well, just explicit consent. Uh, you basically have to agree on your own terms to be an organ donor, as opposed to opting out, which is presumed consent. And some other places have tried this, some other countries. And that's where it's implied that you agree and you have to opt out independently. Okay, so in the opt in, are you even told about organ donation anywhere? You just go someplace and say, I want to be an organ donor. Well, presumably they would have some sort of marketing campaign or some sort of mentioning somewhere that they can do that, but there is no direct way to do that or there's no requirement to do that. Um, but we should, we should clarify, there is a gray zone here. Some states um, in the United States have been doing what's called mandated choice. And um, actually in Illinois, where we are right here, Yay. Uh, a question is asked when you get a state ID or a license. So in Illinois, the registry says that 60% of adults have registered to be organ donors. And that's a far cry from the national rate, which is really under 40%. Right. And, and it really puts it in front of your face when you get one of these IDs your, or your driver's license. They ask you. So I, I, of course, think about it for a second and go, yes, I do want to yeah. donate my organs. And how about you? And you have to answer. I'm, I'm a registered organ donor. Okay. Well, then you still haven't answered my question. What? Can I have a kidney today on, on, on live or on the air? <laughs> well, if the price is high enough, <laughs> which right. leads us to our leads next us to point. the next thing about a regulated market for buying and selling Another organs. point. This brings up an interesting question about should we, op- should we open up an, uh, a market to just sell organs? Can we, can we sell our own kidneys or sell our own livers? And uh, There's a lot of concerns about this. Big you know? concerns. It's, it right. sounds like a slippery slope, doesn't it? Well, it does, because the rich people would benefit, mm-hmm. and the poor people would sell their organs, and, and I think the number of altruistic donors would decrease. The flip side of this is mm-hmm. um, people risk their lives every day 
you know? And so, I mean, giving an organ is a risky, risky thing. If you give a kid and you've only got one left. So there's, there's a lot of um, issues about this. What do you think about that? Well, you know, I, I think that that's a good argument. People do risk their lives every day. If a coal miner goes uh, it, deep into the mines for really what amounts to a minimum wage in many, uh, many places, um, they're risking their lives. Um, or donating an organ in the same stent is risking your lives, and you're doing it for money. So you could make that, draw that argument. But let's flip it around. Let's say, let's say that uh, you're a person who does the procedures. Would you feel comfortable doing a procedure um, on somebody who is doing it for financial gain only? They're not doing it uh, for because it's they have a relative um, who's who's matched. Um, that can actually donate right there. They're doing it just because they want to make a buck. I see both sides of the issue, but on one hand, I mean, let's let's be honest. You used to be able to. You can't sell, can't do it anymore. I don't think you used to be able to sell blood. I did through. I did that in college. Uh, you can sell hair to a wig company. You can sell semen. You can sell lots of things. So what's the difference between that and a kidney? And and actually, I'll play devil's advocate. Isn't it my kidney to do what I want to do with it? Then again. The other side of that is, well, if I'm taking the health risk, am I going to put that cost on society if my other kidney fails and mm-hmm. I need more health? There, there's yeah. all kinds of issues here to discuss. Well, you could, you could also uh, change the incentive. You could make it a more long-term kind of incentive, like a one-year term life insurance. You could have better access to care for those who donate. You can give them potential college tuition, although I think that's a little sli- more slippery. Maybe even a tax write-off at the end of the year so that they, they have time to think about it. Okay. Well, what's your reaction? Share your thoughts with us at reachmd.com poll where you can vote on the ReachMD poll. Um, This is a topic that needs more time. We need more time to producers. Medical practices across the country are dealing with financial pressures the likes of which haven't been seen before. It's put tremendous pressure on us to maximize efficiency while still maintaining the standard of care. Patients uh, are fearful of the current economic environment. They're just not coming into our offices, so revenues are down. And those who do come in may not be able to pay as quickly as they used to. That's another issue. Capital improvements are put off, so we kick the can down the road on that new EMR we've been talking about. (laughs) So let's bring in our guest, Karen Zupko. She's president of the national firm Karen Zupko & Associates and has been helping physicians navigate practice management issues since 1974. She'll be our guide today. Uh, Thanks again for joining us, Karen. Hi, how are you? Oh, we are fine. Thank you for being on our show. We have a bunch of email questions coming in, but we're going to get to them a little bit later. I want to start with a question for you specifically. Um, and, and that is, um, these days, doc, doctors are having trouble having patients pay, quite specifically. Patients come in, they complain, well, I'm out of money, I'm out of work, um, I don't want to pay for it. And, and there are creative ways that I see doctors handling this. For instance, my urologist now demands a credit card and says, we're not billing you. We're just going to charge it every month to your account. Uh, what do you think about this, or what other ideas do you have for our uh, physicians out there in their offices and how to collect better in this environment? Well, believe me, I, I see this every single day, and it's uh, an issue of 54% of all large companies are increasing the copays. The skyrocketing deductibles mean that patients have to pay more out-of-pocket, and it does demand that every practice look to um, using more creative strategies. The one that you mentioned used by your urologist is called recurring billing. And I want to point out to listeners, there's nothing unusual about this because if you belong to a health club, you, that bill is paid on recurring billing, right? Dues exactly. every, every single month. If you've got a storage locker, it's paid by paid for by recurring billing. If you've got Comcast or another 
um, kind of internet provider. The church I go to uses recurring billing instead of the collection plate. We specify what credit card or if we prefer a debit out of our checking account. So this is just the way that modern bill payment works today. Well, Karen, can I break in for one second? Sure. With, with those, those are regular payments. I mean, you may go to your doctor and you may get nicked for um, your deductible for suddenly $2,000, suddenly not expect it. But this doctor says, well, that's just it. We're just going to bill you the next month. Well, actually, then if that is the strategy being used by the practice, it's really rather uh, crude and not very well articulated. Um, what we should be doing is saying it's likely... And again, if more practices use the technology that was available, they would know what the patient's liability is. Let me give you a couple of examples. If you go to www.unitedhealthcare.com, there's a patient fee estimator. And the practices that use this, you actually put in my policy number, my group number, and it is specific to the patient in front of you. It's not based on some national fee schedule. So I think... and and will show you if my deductible was paid. So then we would say, hey, Karen, you haven't met your $2,000 deductible, so there is going to be some liability for this procedure you're having, and we would like to suggest that you sign up for a recurring billing program, and I've got a couple companies that doctors should look into for this sort of thing, and then we would say, all right, let's do five payments of... 100 or 75 or 50. You don't just say to the patient, whatever's not paid by your insurance, we're going to whack your credit card. Mm -hmm. Obviously, today, you've got billions of dollars that are being shrunk out of the credit markets, out of the Visa and MasterCard and Discovers. If you did that, you would wind up with a bunch of bounced credit card payments. So, again, uh, understanding only part of the strategy and not articulating it fully is going to be a problem in and of itself. So we would encourage physicians to look at companies like Acclaim, www.acclaim.com, which helps arrange for that uh, component of the recurring billing. You would look at a company like Solveris or Heartland. Both of those companies are credit card processors that offer a similar feature. You would look at um, a company like RealMed, um, which allows you, not just with Blue Cross Blue Shield, but a whole host of payers to, de- to have real-time claim adjudication while the patient is standing there. So you would then be able to say to the patient, this is what your balance is. How shall we take care of that amount? If it's small, if it is that for- more typical today, $40 copay, you can collect it right there on the spot. Okay. So what's your take then on, on pre-registering patients? It sounds like it's in the same vein. Are you, are you in favor of that? We have been advocates. I'm so glad you asked me about that. We have been cheerleaders for the concept of patient pre-registration for the last 10 years. We said, why would you let somebody come in and only then begin to determine who they are, what their coverage is? Lots of people today have a, a, a benefit card that quite frankly isn't good. So... We prefer patient pre-registration, and when you use, again, the technology that's available, we can do a swipe of the whole appointment schedule and know 
whose benefit card is good and know to what extent they've met their deductible and what their copay is. Well, what if we don't pre-register them, but then if they don't pay, we just use a hitman, send it to their house? How would that well, work? Um, there are some guys <laughs> in Las Vegas who aren't as busy as they were. That's what. I, that's right. It would and help I the think you, you might be able to get Vinny on a deal there. Right. <laughs> you can uh, always rely on Vinny. All right, we have we we have more serious questions. There there is one on email here that I'd like to ask you. It's from Sonia, who's a patient care coordinator in Beverly Hills at a plastic surgery office, and she goes. She has several patients come in. And I have several patients come in and ask us to price match. These patients bring quotes from physicians in the same zip code with the same board certification as us. Some offices are offering procedures at rock-bottom prices. These prices are so low, I cannot see how these physicians are keeping their doors open. I refuse to cut our prices like this. I feel it devalues a physician's work. I also feel that the offices offering these types of crazy prices are hurting the entire industry at an already difficult time. In your opinion, how how should we respond to this request? Well, from patients. clearly, um, Sonia, the, the physician that employs Sonia is a very, very lucky man indeed. Um, the patient coordinator, as these folks are called, as people in her position are called in a, in a plastic surgery practice, need to be able to counter price objections. And this game of how low can it go um, is a lose-lose proposition. And there are physicians who are so desperate that they have taken their fees to a level that won't even allow them to, that only allows them to cover their overhead and not pay themselves. And I think you don't want to get into that sort of competition. Remember, you guys were laughing earlier that we're here in the state of Illinois. Remember our governor. Um, once you damage your reputation, it's going to be really hard to get it back when the economy recovers. Well, I, and that's true. And I have patients who ask me in the office, frankly, they, they try to like bargain down on a, on a procedure. And I go like, it's not an auction <laughs> here, folks. Right, exactly. <laughs> we're, we're, this is not, we're not buying, <laughs> we're not yeah. buying rugs. <laughs> right. So, I, and I think um, on the other hand, let me say, now remember, Sonia's in Beverly Hills, it's elective cosmetic surgery. Um, and it's probably really expensive to start off to. And, well, yeah. it might be. Yeah. But, but I think the, the larger point, and you raised that in your introduction, we do have patients who have been our patients. Some of the internal medicine and OBGYN and, and pediatricians listening to the show. You have people who have been your patients, they had insurance, and they always paid their balances, and they always followed your advice. They were good paying patients. One of our themes this year has been to help doctors find a common sense approach to not charging these patients who may not um, have worked for a company that offered COBRA or they may not be able to afford the COBRA even with the stimulus money to be able to create a fee schedule that um, means that the patient will come in when they need to, but that the doctor is not carrying this completely as a charity burden. And it's a, a, a bit long of a process, but we don't feel that charging uninsured patients a full retail fee schedule that isn't paid by any insurance company makes sense. So in short, we typically use, because it's published and everybody can see it, the Medicare fee schedule, and then depending on the patient's circumstance, we either charge them at the Medicare, the full Medicare rate, or we charge Medicare plus 10% or 20%. Other doctors are offering patients a cash discount if they can afford to pay on, on a, a 
lower reduced rate. Well, well we do that. Can I take that one step further though, yeah, with you? Yeah, please. How about the patients who still are really, really in trouble, even on a Medicare fee schedule? Um, how about actually communicating with those patients, talking to them, and seeing what they can afford, and then charging them that? For your yes. really long-time <clears throat> patients, someone's been coming to you for 30 years. I don't want them to go away. You know, Correct. The... Correct. Because you know what? They get another job. The economy recovers. And they send all I... their friends to your office, too, because they say how nice you are, the patients with insurance. Correct. Because I think here's what happens. The, um, public, the opportunity for a public relations coup or a public relations disaster for many practices is a very... Uh, slim line. I don't believe that physicians are the best people to be doing individual patient negotiations. You're not paid well enough by carriers to do that. So what every practice does need is a financial counselor, and whether it's the office manager, the billing manager, it's not the receptionist sitting out in the middle of the fishbowl. It's a person who has both heart and head. They've got the mind to do it and they've got the heart to do it. The doctor's mission, and I don't know if you guys are in solo practice or group practice or how that works for you. Can you answer that question? I'm in, I'm in solo practice. Okay. So what? You, then you only have to have a conversation with yourself. And I put it this way. I want you to create four different options. And I want you, one day, you know, while drinking a cup of coffee, to work with your manager to define what those four options are and what the criteria are. And let me make a, a strong suggestion to your listeners about doing two important things. One, go to, uh, if you Google federal poverty guidelines, this gives you objective data and it shows you that three people living on $43,000 a year would be at 300% of the federal poverty guidelines. So it gives you some basis for your decision making. That's one. The second thing I think every practice should do is to survey the business offices of the hospitals where the doctors admit and to speak with somebody in financial counseling. We've been using this year, uh, there was a, a big article in the Tribune that showed the extraordinary variation between the community and the uh, uh, religiously affiliated hospitals and the academic medical centers and the community um, hospitals here in the Chicagoland area, there was a tremendous variation on who qualified for discounted care or charity care. Karen, we have two points in two more minutes, so okay. I have to just clue you in on that. Okay, go, go. Last two, no, the last two points you were going to make. You said there were four. Oh, four no, things. I think the major thing is getting the federal poverty guidelines and, going to, and getting that data from the hospital and you, the doctor, need to create the four options that I, as your staff person, can offer. Okay, I get that. That's, sorry. I think, I, that that, I think that that's, I'm, I'm interested in that. I think that that's. But it sounds valid. like a, a take home is not to change fees, but to discount with adjustments. I mean, Correct. Be, Thank you. Yeah. Is Thank that, you. Is that that is exactly it. Changing the fee is a disaster. Not billing for what you have done is a disaster. And downcoding is another. Uh, strategy that some doctors have used uh, just because nobody told them not to. So now we've done that. Yeah, I think you have to like use your head, but use your heart in all these situations, and see who the pa- see who the people are too. Right. I mean, we had one patient recently who didn't want to pay us and kept fooling around, and yet I heard from people in the community that she's always out playing golf and shopping and buying stuff. And it's like, 
it, it kind of got me angry. So Of uh, course. So another question, Matt. So we have another email question here. They're, they're coming in fast. Laura, a nurse and uh, St. Louis, uh, Missouri, uh, part of an orthopedics uh, clinic, says that our business is located in both St. Louis, Missouri and Belleville, Illinois. Can a business have a multi-state workman's comp insurance instead of one for each state? And if so, do you know of any underwriters? Um, Laura's question is a complicated one, and we researched this. Um, and it is state. There are state specific. There's five states, for example, that delivers worker, workers' compensation insurance to employers through a monopolistic state fund that also controls rating in the jurisdiction. Um, so North Dakota, Ohio, Washington, West Virginia, and Wyoming are monopolistic markets. Um, and then each of these other have regulatory bodies. So what I would like uh, Laura to do is to email me through the website at www.karenzupco.com because it, it's, it's, a compli- it's a complicated issue that she's yeah. asking about. Do it. Everybody, everybody email her and ask her oh, to God. donate organs to you. Flood that okay. email. Okay. <laughs> you guys are on a, are on a real roll here we on are. that organ well, donation. Well, we like I'm an fun. organ donator, by Good. the way. Well, Karen. <laughs> I signed up. All right. Well, thank you for joining us today. And uh, we'll have you back, I hope. Well, I, I would love to be invited. Thank uh, you. And I enjoyed the earlier part of the show. Thank you. <laughs> okay. Bye-bye. Bye. Uh, Karen Zupko is the president of Karen Zupko is the president of Karen Zupko and Associates. You can find her podcast called Practice Success on our website at ReachMD.com. And we have to learn to use these buttons better, Matt. <laughs> we <laughs> we weren't trained, <laughs> but I but we did wash our hands before we touched yeah, them. Don't blame the messengers. All right. On the ReachMD forum today, Matt, is science glamorous enough and sexy enough? We certainly are. It's, it's a refrain we've heard a couple of times recently in a couple different contexts. Should the medical community do more to relate to the public at large? And if so, how to go about it? Well, I know one way not to go about it. I was, uh, <laughs> I have to tell you this story. So I'm on a, a psych ward with a team, and we're rounding, and we come to one patient uh, who says that he would not take uh, medications uh, from his, his, his doctor. Uh, and when asked why, he said, well... The problem is that you're not a doctor. And the psychiatrist looked over and said, I actually, I kind of am a doctor. He said, well, like, you're not a psychiatrist. And he said, I am a psychiatrist. He said, yes, but you're not a sexy psychiatrist. <laughs> at that point, the whole team had to start laughing because the guy said, well, you kind of got me at that. I'm really not. <laughs> and he was serious. <laughs> and it well, makes a good point, though, doesn't it? I mean, there, there is, even, even among the psych patients, even normal patients, doesn't matter. It, it, it does come down to uh, how we sell ourselves, doesn't it? Exactly. Well, there was a, a great recent interview on Comedy Central's Colbert Report, and uh, how Stephen Colbert sat down with the NIH director Francis Collins. There was it was I saw the interview. It was really funny. There was lots of humor, mm. or jokes, uh, lots of self-deprecating humor, and and he, they even discussed the human genome and personalized medicine and stem cells. They got it all into it. And it was funny, and yeah. I, I could see where the public would really like it. Well, this guy held his own, didn't he? Yeah, he really did, and, and he even shook his hair and took off his glasses. He, he was kind of <laughs> wasn't sexy to me, I but he was it, but he was kind of cute, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and and it triggered a blog post on the Scientist website about making science sexy. Yeah. Now this guy rides a Harley. He sings. He plays guitar. He's hot. He is. He is the the next big thing. Well, I'm sure there are, there are a lot of people who are out there wondering, how can I be, quote-unquote, sexy as a scientist? How can I sell myself better? How can I get out there to the masses? 
but I often wonder about a, a slippery slope here. I mean, at what point are we going to be looking at, for instance, maybe a JAMA swimsuit edition for physicians? Is it going to be like uh, Speedos and Stethoscopes month? And we'll be on the cover, you and I. <laughs> I don't think so. Uh, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> I might draw that line somewhere. All right. Uh, well, you know, Dr. Collins is also part of another campaign with a similar message. It's called Rock Stars of Science, and they okay. pair major rock stars with well-known doctors and scientists. And, you know, I'm kind of bothered a little bit by this. Do we need to attract people to science and medicine because we're sexy, or do we need to attract people with brains who, or hearts who really want to get in and do this? I mean, Well, we don't have brains, but we're sexy, and we we're able to get out there, I think. So I think the ends justify the means. <laughs> Well, I mean, is there a lack of applications to medical school? There may be for scientists, but... No, no. I mean, medical school applications have not gone down. But I think what we're projecting here is out through, let's say, 2020. There is going to be a major shortage, especially in primary care, which is not, quote-unquote, sexy compared to... Then let's go, back, let's go back to the last shows. Most doctors are happy. Maybe we should project that image that doctors are happy people, that we love what we do. Maybe we should project the image that scientists are really satisfied and happy in making discoveries and helping the planet a better place. I think sexy is kind of like pushing it a little bit, mm -hmm. or even, even with the jokes is pushing it. Let's, let's portray the image that this is a valuable profession that's satisfying. Mm -hmm. You know, the people, it, we, you're going to make an okay income. You're going to be very happy if you get to be a doctor and probably a scientist too. Yeah. I, I think that's better than sexy on, on the post. Yeah, yeah, I would agree with you. Although it is a changing landscape, is it not? I mean, the prestige is not quite there as it used to be. Primary care physicians are often just called health providers these days. They're not even called physicians uh, half the time by providers. Uh, the money is not tops for many people. They, they can, you know, people get by, but it depends on what specialty you go in. I mean, there is some appeal towards trying to make yourself more marketable uh, in medicine or science in general. Yeah, yes, but I know doctors who make a lot less money, but they're extremely happy. This is still a great profession. Touche. That's a good point. <laughs> and that about does it for us here on Second Opinion Live. we got to go scrub it off before we eat it later. <laughs> Reminding you to wash your hands, I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz. And for more about Second Opinion Live on ReachMD, visit our website at reachmd.com sol. Feel free to give us a shout on Twitter, online, and on feedback. It's our last show for our producer, Tony. Thank you very much. You can also follow us on your iPhone, especially if you're a sexy scientist. Only if you're a sexy That's right. I'm Dr. Michael Greenberg asking for your kidneys. Thank you for joining us. <laughs> Keep your thank radio God, dialed in to ReachMD, XM160. And thank you for joining us. Keep following us. <laughs>